I haven't heard anybody say or suggest that fall games aren't going to happen, right? For like the 240 whatever teams that uh, remain standing in the fall for Division Three football. But, uh, you know, until it actually happens and happens on a consistent basis, you know, it's hard to get your hopes up too much, I guess. I just really want to get my hopes up. Yeah, I, even even out here where nobody has been allowed to go to school yet, the the plans are to have athletes filter back onto campus in August and resume fall sports activity per usual. Football fans, it's now time for the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. Here are your hosts, Pat Coleman and Keith McMillan. You've tuned in to the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. Two guys and occasional guests talking about the news in NCAA Division Three football. I'm Pat Coleman, the guy in charge of D3Football.com. Keith McMillan will join us a little bit later, but they're also joined by Greg Thomas, who is now the regular, semi-regular, super sort of awesome, often sub co-host. Some of those words that I said there are not going to get into the podcast. They'll get edited out because they were unintentional, but it is nonetheless good to good to have you back. Greg. Your mileage may vary with me, I guess. Um, it, you know, it's, it's going to be back here on Around the Nation talking spring football. We're not talking postponements. We're not talking cancellations. This is just good old fashioned podcast, Pat. I mean, we did postpone this podcast by a week or so. so I can't even say that we're immune. Um, we have coming up later. Uh, we talked literally to, or we heard literally from 16 people connected with the Wesley football program, mostly alumni who suited up and played for the Wolverines over the course of the um, uh, 35 or so years that Wesley played Division Three football. And I've got uh, Keith on board to uh, bring us through that section and talk Wesley football history. So there's a lot of that coming up. And that was the segment we couldn't quite get finalized last week otherwise we would have had you know game balls for spring week nine instead of game balls for spring week 10 nonetheless it's hard not to talk about post moments or cancellations though because um you know if i even like log in on saturday morning and get different information than the previous time that i checked right it's like i don't know remember how many cancellations or postponements we ended up with this past weekend maybe it was eight or so and we have six already at the time that we're recording this on Monday nights out of, uh, out of 30 games and who knows what that number will end up being eventually anyway. Yeah. I think we, I think we thought that we would see, you know, pretty fluid scheduling uh, this spring. We've seen games come about on very short notice. We've seen games canceled. We've seen some games downgraded to scrimmages on the day of this spring. You just have to sort of play them when you can get them and, and just go with, go with the flow. George Fox and Pacific uh, last Saturday night played a game. It was fully classified as a game. They ran the second half of the game as a JV game. It was basically all of their JV guys played the entire second half. And I checked back and I was like, well, they're still counting it as a game. I watched a little bit of it. It's like, okay, it's still being contested like a game. So, you know, I wasn't going to go back and question is like, should this really be classified as a scrimmage or anything? But that's sort of the sort of thing I actually kind of thought Greg, that we would see more of that, right? And we saw, is it, was it Hanover and Mount St. Joe uh, at the beginning of the HCAC season? Like the morning of seemed to declassify their game and turn it into a scrimmage. And it really was a scrimmage. Like after the first half, it devolved into special teams work or something like that. Not a game. We talking about practice. I kind of thought there would be more of that, but you know, pretty much teams are lining up 
if they're able to get on the field, they are lining up and it is as serious as anything outside of an ECAC game. I've been pleasantly surprised at that. Like you, I thought we would see more of the treatment of spring games as like developmental exhibitions, scrimmagey kinds of things, joint practice kinds of things. And we haven't seen a lot of that. It, you know, they're, Teams are competing. They're playing. Um, you know, their their number one guys are playing most of the games, um, and coming out when games get you know out of hand. Like it, the the game flow, I guess, is is not unlike what we would see in a fall season. And I I, I credit a lot of uh, the conferences that built championship structures into their schedules. Yeah, because the the teams and the coaches and the players have really rallied around competing for that conference championship, even if it's not a playoff bid and a postseason, the conference championship still means a lot to these players and, uh, and they're going for it and competing. And it's been a lot of fun to watch this spring. Shortly before the spring season started, I got an email or a DM or something like that from one of the guys at d2football.com kind of asking what the division three season looked like. And I described it for him. I said, we were expecting, you know, maybe about half of the teams to schedule games and that we were looking at a lot of schools playing four or five games and a lot of conferences splitting into divisions and playing this conference championship. And he was saying, oh, and D2, we're just kind of treating it like, you know, uh, joint practices or glorified scrimmages or something like that. And I see it's not that different in D3. It's like, oh, I don't understand what you just said and how it relates to what I just said to you because we are taking this. I said, that is not how we are dealing with that in Division Three. People are taking this stuff seriously. And, you know, like you said, it showed up. We go back to look at the, you know, the ASC title game from a couple of weeks ago. Uh, the intensity of the SAA title game. Uh, we've got uh, title games on the books for this week and still, you know, more of them to come as well. And I don't expect any of those to be any different. They're going to get to take home a trophy and hang a sign. And if they're the kind of people who give out rings, they're going to give out rings, I guess. They are. Do they do rings in the ODAC? Because the ODAC championship was uh, was a phenomenal championship game uh, that has happened since we last since we last got into the studio. That's true. Um, you know, it's yeah. it's a school by school thing, right? I know that um, at Mary Harden Baylor or Mount Union, for example, I don't know that they would ever uh, give out a ring for merely a conference championship. Although, yes, we know that Mount Union comes into the season with every year their stated goal is to win the OAC. Uh, and then see where it goes from there. Nonetheless, um, I definitely see people out there shaming, I guess, other schools for giving out rings for their conference championships. I'm like, this is, there's 28 conferences uh, of which, you know, a half dozen at most are ever going to get a chance to really play for a national championship. So let them have their thing. Yeah, where I don't where's the harm in celebrating achievement for those guys? Winning conference championships is hard. We have a handful of schools that seem to win their conference year in and year out and you know, schools that have aspirations beyond just winning their conference and getting a chance to play in the postseason, but I mean for most schools winning a conference championship is a thing that comes that you come across once every four or five or six or 10 years. Like it's, it's hard to win conference championships and there's no, no shame in celebrating that with a little, with a little hardware. If, like if schools are funding that. 
Right, exactly. Or however they choose to do that. That's out of out of my realm. You mentioned the ODAC championship, uh, a thrilling game, obviously, that went into overtime and uh, Randolph Macon defeated Emery and Henry. We haven't had a chance to talk on this podcast about the USA South championship and everything that went into the things that happened before that, shall we say. And I don't want to get into the politics because it is not our thing, right? It's not the, you know, we're just here to report the news. Um, we understand clearly why Huntington was in that championship game. And then of course they really took it to Methodist, but really, if you think about it coming out of that season, it's, it's really Huntington and Brevard that come into now the fall of 2021, really the set the best in the USA South. Absolutely. And if, I mean, if you're wondering about how serious teams are taking, uh, their spring football, um, just review some some Brevard Twitter over the last couple of weeks and see um, how they feel about having not been given the opportunity to play Methodist in that USA South championship game. Uh, yeah, but I, I do think that uh, Huntington and Brevard have kind of established themselves as the, the uh, go-to top teams in that conference. And, you know, Brevard is a fairly new program building and building and building. They found uh, a really solid young quarterback this spring and Eli Carr. We hope that he is uh, able to able to come back and play in the fall. Yeah, that was uh, that was ugly, by the way. We have to at least describe that uh, um, it was a pretty catastrophic leg injury. Let's put it that way. A lower body injury is what we would say in the NHL, right? It was pretty bad. Yes, very. It, it, he may not. I would be surprised if he can play in the fall, to be honest with you. It, Yes, it was. Uh, I think it might have been their very first drive of the game, and he delivered a just a great deep ball. But as he planted and threw, he also got hit down around the knee. And you know, fortunately, the camera wasn't on the play. The camera followed the ball. Thankfully, this time, when when they did pan back, um, you know, you couldn't. You know, Eli Carr was unfortunately on the ground, and I believe the the quote from the the Maryville announcer was his leg is sideways. That's not how you want to be really. Yeah. Certainly we hope uh, Eli Carr's uh, rehabilitation goes well and he can get back out on the field because he has been an exciting player for them this spring. Now's the time of the podcast where we would thank our sponsors. In this case, the people who have been really floating D3 sports.com, keeping it alive, keeping us, you know, able to count on a guaranteed pipeline, a regular pipeline of monthly funding over the course of the past several months. And that, of course, is our Patreon subscribers. If Patreon is something that's new or unusual or something that, uh, you know, you don't necessarily follow or understand, it's like this. It's uh, content creators have patrons, or in this case, Patreon patrons, who then uh, pledge a specific amount of money to those content creators on a monthly basis. And that enables us to, you know, kind of replace some of the, or kind of make up for some of the uncertainty that we have been dealing with here in the D3 sports world over the past 57 weeks, something like that. Uh, because, you know, we did not have a football season in the fall. The website and the D3sports.com network runs off of primarily ad revenue and if pages if people aren't loading pages and people load pages when games are being played if people aren't loading pages and if you're loading pages please you know let the ads display it doesn't hurt you it gets us you know a fraction of a penny and that's helpful to us 
That is how we keep all of the websites running, basically. A significant amount of all the D3Sports.com sites' annual revenue comes in the fourth quarter of the year when Division Three football is being played. So without that, you know, Greg and I would not have been here right now. We would have uh, probably closed the doors at the end of December or so of last year and had to full and would have had to fold up shop after 23 years or something like that. So thank you to all of you who are doing your part. Some of you especially are going above and beyond. We really appreciate that. Thank you for doing that. To find out more, you can go to patreon.com slash d3sports, or you can go to the front page of d3football.com and click on the We Need Your Help banner, which I know I should re- I should write a new story and update people, but thank you so much to all of those people who are doing this. Game ball. Game ball. Game balls. Game balls. Game balls. And it's time for game balls. And my game ball is going to go to the Martin Luther ground game, the entire ground game. I understand. Yes, I'm going to step in and take over Keith's role for a second. And I'm going to hand out game balls to more than one person. But the Knights have been firing on all cylinders this season, or, you know, at least the cylinders that involve the run game. They got warmed up in their opener on April 3rd at Ripon, averaging five yards a carry and uh, 345 yards in total in a 34-16 win on the road. This past week, it was 487 yards, eight yards per carry in a 44-14 win at Minnesota Morris. Against Morris, Austin Denoyer had 218 yards and three touchdowns and just 12 carries. You math majors at home doing the math, doing the math. Yeah, 18.2 yards per carry. Sorry, beat you to it. And the week before that, it was Joshua Kren averaging 9.1 yards a carry, 23 carries for 210 yards against Rippon. Denoyer was playing quarterback that game, by the way, and uh, they had a uh, freshman quarterback on Saturday against Morris. But more more importantly, or just as importantly, I want to shout out left tackle Derek Golrud, left guard Cole Bruckheitzen, center Sam Boder, right guard Carrington Cunningham, and right tackle Andrew Osherak. That's my bucket of virtual game balls, a whole bag of balls right there for primarily week 10. That's a lot of game balls. I'm going to keep it simple and go with just one game ball. And my game ball is going to go to Drew Sims, the freshman quarterback at Heidelberg. Sims is coming off of a 21 of 32 performance for 288 yards and three touchdowns in a student Prince victory over Ohio Northern on Friday night. Sims has been stellar over the first four games of this abbreviated OAC season, completing 64% of his passes for over 300 yards per game and a tidy 16 to three touchdown to interception ratio. Thanks to Sims, Heidelberg is undefeated this spring and they have played their way into an OAC championship game this Friday night against Mount Union. Quick aside, this pod is already long, but I'm going to throw one quick aside here. How about that Mount Union Marietta game, right? This is that's just so very strange to think about that game uh, because, you know, obviously Heidelberg much uh, is going to have much more. Uh, offensive weapons to choose from than Marietta did. And I think Marietta was missing some guys offensively, but uh, you know, I don't know, defensively, it's hard to do much better than Marietta did for uh, you know the first half, the first three quarters of that game uh, to tune in and, you know, refresh and see eight to three at the half. And it's not like eight to three at seven fifty of the first quarter. 
pretty mind-boggling about that game. Yeah, I think you got to give uh, some some props to Marietta. They've been they've been steadily improving, getting better. I think they had a shot um, a couple of years ago, maybe to beat a playoff-bound John Carroll team. Um, they've been, you know, they had this great defensive performance against Mount Union. They couldn't get anything going offensively against Purple Raider defense, but. I mean, you got to start somewhere against those guys. And if you can keep Mount Union to 20 points or whatever it was, you give yourself a shot, really. And that's as much as anybody in the OAC has been able to do for the last 30 years. So, um, yeah, good, you know, hats off to uh, Andy Waddle and uh, and what he's doing there at Marietta. He's really, really building that program up to something that may be uh, competing for OAC, OAC championships sometime one out of the category in our spring pods and we're highlighting a team that has really helped itself out with its spring play it's our big winner Whoa! my big winner to date for the spring for this week is westminster of pa titans are three and zero headed into this week's game against carnegie mellon if they win that one that brings up a date with what will likely be the presidents of washington and jefferson for the pack title so without case western reserve participating this spring obviously the pack is a little bit less robust but the Titans cruise to two early wins, and then they survive to win in the fourth quarter on Friday night against Grove City. So the Tartans, and if they win, presumably the Presidents, will be the two most significant challenges for the Titans to finish off the spring with before Westminster, as we said, opens with Mount Union in the fall. And that is one heck of a way to open your season. My big winner this week is going to be a team that's been off for a couple of weeks, Mary Harden Baylor. Um, since we last checked in, the Crusaders defeated Harden-Simmons in the ASC title game and completed their spring season at a perfect 5-0. 5-0 and ASC champions were probably expected from UMHB this spring, but the Crusaders found a quarterback that really seems to suit their style of offense in Kyle King. They found a pair of really dynamic running backs in Kenneth Cormier and Montana Miller, and they were able to give really valuable experience to three freshman offensive linemen, an offensive line, by the way, that really, really did a great job against Harden-Simmons in that championship game. Um, you know, for a team that really spends the first two months of their regular season tinkering around with uh, particularly their offensive personnel, uh, the crew may have learned a lot about what the core of their team for fall 2021 is going to look like without that requisite six to eight weeks of experimentation that we tend to see with them throughout the fall leading up into postseasons. Now on the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast, we're joined by Keith McMillan, and we're going to be joined by a bunch of Wesley College football alumni, but uh, Keith... Glad to have you back. Welcome back. And of course, I'm glad to be on this episode, Pat. Um, but it's going to be much more interesting to hear from the folks who who Wesley meant a lot to over the years. And I think as you folks listen to some of these memories, you know, think about what it would be like if if your program had shut down. You know, a, a place that was a huge part of your life for maybe the four years you played or the years your son played, or um, maybe it's been a huge part of your life for 40 years. You know, we have some some listeners who uh, who went somewhere and have stayed, remained close to the pro program. And uh, as we know, you know, a lot of division three institutions are uh, are operating on a shoestring budget. So I just I just ask you, ask you as listeners to put yourself 
in those shoes and, and wonder what it would be like to, to see your program, uh, a program that had reached really, really almost unimaginable heights. I guess they're technically imaginable. Um, you know, to, to see that go away. It, it's, uh, it's uh, at once, it's, it's heartbreaking and it's also touching because you really realize how much difference uh, an interested and dedicated coach and coaching staff can make and an institution that, uh, that supports athletics. It can really make a huge difference in people's lives. And you'll hear that in the folks' voices in, in the next couple of minutes. We literally have 16 people on this list who took the time to, in a lot of cases, uh, just call my voicemail and leave a story on my voicemail. I felt like uh, we were doing a call-in show there uh, for, a, for a brief moment. You'll get to hear so a, a variety of stories starting in the 1980s when Wesley moved from being a junior college to a four-year school. Uh, and then, you know, all the way up through the, the previous decade. So without further ado, we will throw it to the Wesley alumni. My name is Rick Vogel. I played for the Wolverines from 1987 to 89. We had a game, I remember, in 1987. Um, back then, we were struggling as a program, going from the junior college level to the Division three level. Coach Bob Andrews was doing his best he could. We had some tough years there, and I remember the last game of the year, we were playing Ferrum, who was a powerhouse. You know, at that point in the year, we had a lot of guys banged up. A couple of kids didn't want to play in the last game. We were going to play Ferrum at Ferrum. We ended up playing with uh, like 27 kids. I remember the week before, Bob had a bunch of us play both ways just so we could get the game in. I think we lost like 49 nothing in the game, but at least we were able to play the game and keep Wesley going as far as... Um, having the pride to finish out the season. I think Bob Pagers, you know, exemplified that as far as having a lot of pride. Um, another fun memory was also in 1989, my junior year, Tim Keating was the head coach then, and Mike Drass, and also Chip Knapper on the staff then as well. And I think it was our, one of our first really big Division three wins. We, we beat a Delaware Valley program. Beat him at Del Val, and I think that was a big – a big win for Wesley then. We hadn't really beaten any sort of anybody from the MEC conference or any of the, you know, the uh, respected conferences, I believe. So this team was uh, the team we beat in a lot of respect. It was a close game. I think it was 21-14. And we had, we had you know, a pretty nice nucleus of players starting to develop some of the recruits that Coach Drass had actually, Coach Knapp and Coach Keaton, who they had uh, recruited did a really nice job in that game, I remember. But that, that game sort of uplifted us, gained some confidence. You know, the following year, Wesley, I think, went 5-5 five and five as well. We got one story that wasn't a voice recording. It is a text in the form of a text from Calvin Griffin, who played in 1986. And the rest here, I'm quoting his text. The story of Wesley football I have is not of a winning game. It's actually the worst loss ever. It was the first year of Wesley in Division Three. I believe we played three teams in the top ten of Division Three. On our last game, we were playing Salisbury State. They were the number one team in the country at the time, and we were probably the worst team in the country. It was so bad that President Stewart came to our practice and said the school was concerned we would get hurt or too embarrassed if we played. He wanted us to know we had the option to not play. I was shocked because as a freshman, I came from a high school program that would never have considered such a thing, but the president had to ask. Needless to say, we voted to play the game. We lost 63-13. to 13. I tell this story because we didn't quit. 
Coach Andrus was asked why we played such a hard schedule our first year. He said, I could have picked easier teams with our talent level, but I wanted to play the best to become the best. I was so glad he was able to live to see his belief come true. That day we carried Wesley football's future on our shoulders and we grew as young men. We learned to never quit and continue to fight even when outmanned. More importantly, we learned to show up. We started the season with 86 players and ended up with 27 for that game. I don't know what became of everyone who played that game. I'd like to believe what they learned by making it through that season helped them make it through tough times in life. I've always wondered what would have happened to our program if we didn't play that game, but I take great comfort in knowing what happened because we did. Wolverines for life. And that was Calvin Griffin, Wesley Football, about 1986. Hey, hey, this is Ken Pippen here, 87 to 90. Coach with Coach Draft, 91, 92, 93. Uh, tell you a story that Coach Dress always loved. It was in 88 or 89. We were playing Ferrum, and I played defensive end. And Chris Warren, who uh, former, I believe, Seahawks, Dallas Cowboys, uh, he was scoring his fourth or fifth touchdown, high-stepping it at the five-yard line. I had my angle pursuit. Um, I knocked him out of bounds into the fence. Benches cleared, etc. That... Uh, and I quote Coach Draft, that is the day Wesley football changed, period. Another favorite memory is um, we used to run under lightning, where I would, it was an under defense. Lightning was, I played nose guard number 72, and I would swim, bull rush, or um, clubbing under the center. That's where I got most of my sacks from. And uh, Coach Draft would yell for me to, going to the left hole, the right hole, or head up, head up. Sometimes he would get tongue-tied, and I would come off the sidelines. He'd say, I told you to go left, I told you to go left. And I'd say, I, I, um, I went right, and he would say, no, 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 do as I think, not as I say. And I actually got to the point where I could actually uh, know what he was thinking instead of what he was verbally yelling from the sidelines. <laughs> Mr. Coach Drafts. Keith, great stories of Wesley's early days. You and I have talked about so many Division Three football startup programs and how you know that uh, growth curve kind of comes. It didn't come right away for Wesley. They lost the first 25 games that they played before they beat uh, Gallaudet in 1988. And then they went four and five the next year. That's the win against DelVal that uh, Rick Vogel talked about in his clip. Uh, talk, there's talk there about some of the older coaches, right? Bob Andrus, uh, Tim Keating, who went on to coach Western Maryland. You know, we spent some time in the 20 teens, is that what we're calling it? Uh, talking about Occidental, which had gone from being a playoff caliber football program in, in the Sky Act to almost losing their program. And they were in a very similar situation where they were running out of kids. And, and we've talked about this, you know, occasionally over the years for, for D3 teams when, uh, when they're teetering on the fence. And, and sometimes uh, when, when the numbers get low, uh, it portends the the vanishing of a program. In this case, I just think the amazing part, of course, is hearing that story of, of the playing with 27 kids and getting their faces beat in, for lack of a better term. Uh, and then you, you extrapolate that out to, to you know, 2009, probably, well, I think was probably the best Wesley team, went to Mount Union, and uh, it took a, a future NFL player coming in at quarterback and running read option to death, right? Cecil Short's 
helped beat that Wesley team. Wesley played the best of the best o- over the years and, and played them toe to toe. Mary Harden Baylor, they played Mountain Union, they played Whitewater, uh, Linfield. I mean, they they played everybody, and and that's just that's just the national teams. You know, they also played a lot of the great teams out of the East. They mentioned the Delaware Valley game and that being the first big win. Delaware Valley was also a program that was on hard times for a long time, came up in uh, in the early 2000s, and then suddenly those early season. Delval Wesley games were huge games and set the stage for for playoff rematches for playoff seating and uh, it's just really I guess instructive indicative you know or, or you know it got a little dusty here when uh, when they were talking about uh, you know that's the moment Wesley changed we fought through this from the outside it's easy to say well why do you even bother playing when you only have a certain number of kids or you know you're going to lose by 40 or 50 points that's why because they extended the life of a program uh, that went to Great Heights, and, and you never get the the Larry Beavers and the, and the Brian Robinsons and, and all the, the great players that eventually came through Wesley and became um, household names. And, you know, I'm not even mentioning the quarterbacks, right? They, Wesley sent guys to the NFL. You don't get any of that if they don't make it through those, those seasons in the 80s. So that's what really stood out to me. We're going to move ahead to the 90s with our next set of clips. My name is Sean Clark. I played football at Wesley College from 91 to I graduated in 96 to 95. And the biggest thing that I really remember the most about that school is Coach Strass always preached, uh, take care of the classroom and football, take care of itself, and it always did. I got into some academic trouble and had to take classes at a junior college. And Coach Strass called me every week to see how I was doing in it didn't dawn on me then when I was 19, but as an adult, I realized every week he called me, he never asked me, was I training, was I working out? He just always asked me, was I going to class? Because he wanted me to graduate, because he told my mom I would graduate and take care of the classroom and football, take care of itself. And it always did. And I ended up graduating in 96 and had a great career at Wesley and something that's meant a lot to me and my life, even today. All right, thanks a lot, Pat. You guys do a great show, and I'm going to miss listening to it every week just to hear what you guys are going to say about my Wolverine. It's Milt Alexander. I was a running back at Wesley College from 1992 through 1995. Coach Drass uh, recruited me out of Philadelphia, and one of the things I can say he always valued us as people first you know, he treated all of his players like family. Uh, Coach Knapp was my offensive coordinator. Coach Knapp was very competitive. We played intramural basketball against him during the offseason, and he was a great athlete and also very smart on the basketball floor. So we engaged in many battles on the football field under, you know, both of those two. Drafts is the head coach, and Knapp is our offensive coordinator. I think overall they taught us to work hard during the week and leave it all on the field on Saturdays. And above all, let's try to find a way to win. They always said, and then let's always try to win together. And then the principles of Wesley football and the value system of Wesley football will be instilled in in guys like myself forever. Um, Wesley is a way of life, Wesley football, way of life. And basically the the traditions of Wesley will never die. Um, They'll last forever, and I'm forever grateful. This is Chris Panner. I was a linebacker from 1994 to 1997. I graduated in 1998. 
My favorite story I think I could think of at the moment was back in 2000, I'm sorry, 1996. We had played uh, the College of New Jersey, and the year before they beat us in the ECAC uh, bowl game. We played at home in 96, and it was the first year I think we had our new uh, locker room complex out by the stadium, and the locker rooms were separated by a door, and Coach Drass, uh, in a way to get his, the team fired up, basically screamed and started pounding on the door uh, to get our team fired up, and we went out and won a 24 nothing shutout win, uh, which was, I think, indicative of Coach Drass and his uh, – his demeanor to get his players ready to play every Saturday. My um, second story, real quick, if this can fit in, uh, it was probably the same year, 95 or 96. We played up at, I believe it was Curry College or Framingham, somewhere up in New England, in late September. And we were coming home, and our air conditioning on our bus didn't work. And it with no windows on the bus, we had guys that were just kind of starting to cramp and overheat, and we had to make about three stops on the way back to Dover just to get air and kind of rehydrate ourselves. And, and uh, a, a five-hour trip turned into like an eight-hour trip just because of the amount of stops we had to make. So thanks again for doing this, and uh, I'll be in touch. These guys from the 90s and, of course, the years in which uh, Mike Drass took over, you begin to hear some of these Mike Drass stories. And also, I think this might be the only story we have about being on the bus but goodness knows that uh, Wesley was on the bus going and coming from a lot of different places and not just all over the East Coast either. Well, sure. You know, Wesley bounced around again. You, you know, you heard the guys from the 80s mention that it was a uh, it was a junior college in, in Delaware for a long time. And then it, it uh, came into D3. There was a football only conference called the ACFC that Wesley was in. And at one point that had dropped to, I believe, four teams. And so it finally disbanded after the 2010 season. And Wesley played four years, uh, 2011 through 14 as independent before joining the NJAC, which I think is where they um, had always wanted to be and, and where they belonged. And for those of you not familiar with with uh, upper mid-Atlantic East Coast geography, Dover, it's about an hour and a half from uh, Philadelphia, uh, Delaware, everything is, is on Route 13. So it's a straight shot down. And if you would drive to find Wesley, um, it's kind of easy to find from, from Dover. And Dover is really one of the only two big cities in Delaware. You could find it if you're coming off of, of 13, the main, the main drag. But a lot of times, Pat, and especially where you and I were coming up from, uh, from Northern Virginia, uh, we would drive to Wesley through back roads uh, you go up 302 and you, and you go on, you know, you pass farms and, and uh, Amish buggies. And then all of a sudden, you know, you hit town. And if, if you don't see that left, if you don't make the correct left turn, you, you can miss the campus. And so, you know, Wesley was a, was a tiny place, uh, but they, they took, they, they went to great heights and they took any, they took on any comer essentially, especially in the, in the independent years, you know, um, Wesley, I guess, kind of spared no expense when it came to travel to to play. And so over the years, they played not only everyone out of the MAC and Jack Centennial and all the ACFC schools, the New York schools. That would play them. Right. But they played North Central, DePaul, Thomas Moore, Hampton, Sydney, Capital, East Texas Baptist. Menlo. Uh, Menlo is one of my favorites. And that was that's a California school. That's in the Oakland area. Huntingdon and Birmingham Southern. So down south, they beat one double A or FCS Charlotte when uh, when that program was just getting started. 
I mean, Wesley played anybody and everybody uh, that that would schedule them for uh, for a period there. And they certainly weren't afraid, you know, and I think when you when you get to the top levels, Pat, you and I have had these conversations and maybe a couple other people, Adam Turr and, and, and Ryan Tips, uh, your coaches will will confide in you on, on the phone. And these are the the name guys. They'll say, hey, look, why, why won't anyone else play us? Look, I mean, can we get I, I understand why oh and nine team won't play us, but can we get a game? Well, Wesley was like the opposite. They were like, how can we how can we play Mountain Union? How can we play Mary Harden Baylor? And when they met those teams in the playoffs, uh, they would try to schedule them the next year. And so, you know, there was a year North Central kind of just randomly had an opening and and uh, I guess technically North Central's still the reigning champion in D three. Um, yeah. <laughs> so that's the level of program they they would seek out and and um, you know Coach Dress and 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 Chip Knapp loved those games. And um, you can see why the men that played for those two guys uh, and everybody else who coached there as well really, really respected them. With our next set of clips, we move into the aughts and we start talking about some milestone wins. Hi, how you doing? My name is Dante Walker. I played cornerback from uh, 97 to 2000, graduating 2001. Like just so many memories of Coach Draz and just the squad, but you know, one thing that comes to mind is uh, before the games. As freshmen, you are in the school and you come in and, um, you know, like the upperclassmen are playing Phil Collins. And, you know, you've heard the songs, you know, the kids grew up in the 80s. But, uh, you know, now the song is like a gospel song to me. I mean, hearing it before the games and where it took me, well, like, took my spirit to before the game and then, Right when he got done playing, you know, Coach Drass would walk in, almost like like Hulk Hogan or the Ultimate Warrior, and he would like a walk in, and he would be standing right there to the visitors. You know, our locker room was small anyway, but right near their door, and he would be banging on their door and saying, "They don't want them with us," and you know, we're going to bring it to them who they think they are, and and you know, I know they all heard him, you know, and he didn't care that they heard him; he wanted them to hear him, you know, and that his. Pre-game speeches. I don't remember a lot what he said because he was so hot. He was so like revved up. His face was red and everything. But he got he got me so he got all of us so crazy. My greatest uh, memory was our 2000 team. We were the first team to actually go to the national playoffs. And Coach Drash has been so many dope, great teams that went up before us that was right there but never made it. And right before, like in our last game, we had to play Sharon. And uh, we lost them the year before um, with a field goal that they kicked with, like, no time left. It was only, like, a 20-yard field goal. And it came down to this last game in 2000. If we won, um, whoever won was going to the national playoffs. And it came down to, again, them kicking, like, a 30-yard field goal right at the end, no time left. And I just knew the game was over, kind of. Like, I kind of was just, like, you know, I, I played on a kick, the kick block team or whatever also. And, uh, you know, you still have faith and everything, but we just lost the same way the year before. And Maddie Fox, Maddie Fox, our linebacker, who's probably like 6'4", six, 6'3", six, he blocked the freaking field goal. Man. He blocked the free, he blocked the field goal with no time left. And then the game went to overtime and then we won. And uh, just to see Coach Drass and Coach Nat and just to see, like, the monkey get, get off their back going to the playoffs, that's, and all my boys crying and just, you know, that, at the, you know, that was something that was so special. I think the mayor from Dover came down the next day and this was really big for the school, man. 
Hey, my name is Norman Bauer. I played for Wesley College from 2002 through 2006. Started 46 games at left tackle. Coach Drass promised my mother that if I came there because I was from Florida, that he would take care of me and treat me like a son. Ironically, 2005, I had probably one of the most trying times in my life in which I lost a sister and three of her children. I was completely devastated. That day, I literally was sitting in my dorm room just crying. And the football captains came over, got me, brought me over to the office. And what made this man such a great person, he literally sat there, and he knew I was just holding back. And he came over, gave me a hug. And he just said, go ahead and let it out. We sat there, I cried for about an hour. Every single time I I think back on that moment, it meant so much to me. But when I went to the funeral, it was the largest floral arrangement I'd ever seen. Wesley College football really did it with class. And then Wesley College itself also sent flowers. I was a resident assistant at the time, and the resident's life sent me flowers. Coach Drass, I told him that I didn't think I was coming back for the 2006 season. I told him that I didn't think I could do it. He convinced me to give it another shot. I'm glad I did. Because in 2006, we went 13 and 1 and created a lot of great memories. I'm going to miss Wesley College. If there's one thing that it did for me, help me grow into the man I am today. That was because of the Wesley College program. So many kids, so many young men, so many sons, Coach Drass, fostered. I remember in 2005, we went up to Brockport, New York. We lost something like 47-0. I mean, it was bad. It was our only loss until we lost to Whitewater in the final game. The next year, Coach Knapp came up to us uh, the week of Brockport and said, what do you want to do? I got this star middle linebacker who's All-American leading the nation in tackling. It's like, well, I, I got some throwing things we could do. And I said, no, we're going to run the ball all day. Counter, ISO, zone. We literally ran for like 300 and some odd yards and destroyed them. So that game in particular just sticks down my memory because that's what a family does. They stick together. And we did that for an entire year. And then we destroyed Brockport on that field that day at Wesley College. Keith, that 47 nothing game I know was something we talked a lot about that year. And then, of course, you know they come back the next year and they beat them 48-17. But after that 47 nothing loss, I think we really didn't know what to think about Wesley. Yeah, to be honest, I don't think we thought Wesley was, was for real. Um on, on a national scale at that point, and certainly that Brockport loss. Um, I don't know if we did triple take back then or, or if I was right in the column, but there's somewhere on the internet is probably a bad prediction uh, about what we thought Wesley was going to do in those playoffs. And it wasn't until um, a few weeks later, this is round two, November 2605, Wesley went down to Belton, Texas 
Mary Harden Baylor was fourth in the country and Wesley won that game 46-36. Pat, you and I were doing a different game that day. And I remember we saw that score come in and we were like, oh, Wesley's for real. And this was all like 04 was the year that Rocky Myers, the Wesley strong safety had won the Gallardi trophy. And I think that was kind of nice, but we still didn't give Wesley a lot of national respect yet at that point, because to get respect, you have to earn it. And they hadn't beaten anyone. And, and the day uh, they went down to Texas and beat Mary Harden Baylor. And that's only a few weeks after that 47-0 loss to Brockport. That was the day we all woke up and said, okay, this Wesley thing might be for real. And then after that, all they did was roll off double-digit wins for pretty much uh, all the next 15 seasons. I am looking at the 2005 picking the playoff surprises and disappointments. Essentially, Wesley almost doesn't even merit a mention from us. They're not a surprise. They're not a disappointment. Nobody thinks that they're going to win the bracket. Uh, you know, two of us think, three of us think Mary Harden Baylor is going to win that bracket. Someone thinks Trinity is going to win that bracket. Someone thinks Bridgewater is going to win that bracket. Uh, you go out and specifically say Wesley should be a two and done in that bracket. That's where we're talking, right? That second round game. I mean, how how fortunate are we to have kept that same format for for 15 <laughs> years so that you could call this up in this very moment and uh, and pull it out? No, but I, I think... That's representative of what the South region was at that time. It was still kind of like Bridgewater, W&J, Trinity. And then Mary Harden Baylor had just burst on the scene back in 04 with that overtime win at Mount Union. And then they uh, went to the Stag Bowl against, and, and played against Linfield. And so even, even though I think Mary Harden Baylor had just recently established itself as a national power at that time, uh, Wesley going and winning in Texas and then following it up with several years of really, really good teams. Um, none that that broke through and won a stag bowl, but certainly teams that were competitive uh, and, and gave us some of the great all-time D3 games. You know, uh, that 62-59 game against Mountain Union yep. where Joe Callahan threw for 633 yards or whatever yards. it was, right? And, you know, they were they, we've seen a million Mountain Union games where they jump on somebody and uh, kind of coast to the finish. Uh, and there was no coasting in that one. And uh, and then they played another high-scoring Mountain Union game years later. And like uh, like we said, Wesley played just about everybody. That uh, that Linfield game was uh, was legendary too, because there was a huge lead early, and then and then a big comeback, big turnover, hundred-yard interception return. I mean, Wesley people can can tell you this better than I can. What what the great moments in their history were. The two two Johns Hopkins uh, last-second finishes. Right first round playoff game too, you know? So like those are games where Wesley season is done. If, if they don't win those, they've, they've really been um, an exciting team. They were fun to be around. And I think that, yeah, the fun to be around, I hope we're getting that out of this podcast because um, coach Strauss obviously was, was always great to us as many coaches are around D3. And so that's not really exclusive to coach Strauss, but he was just kind of a special guy. He sort of, he was built like a nose tackle and had the, the face of a leprechaun. And I say that with all due respect, he, he would, if he were here, he would crack up at me saying that because he knows it's true. He kind of had this uh, reddish hair and a reddish beard. And when he got fired up on the sideline, again, being a defensive guy, right? Chip Knapp handled the offense and Chip has kind of a different demeanor, maybe a little bit more of a um, cerebral. Exactly. I was going to say winning with brains. So yeah, so he's like the, he's the, and then Drass was just the in the trenches guy. And again, many D3 folks can relate to this. The fields at D3, right? Not giant stadiums. So you, you're in the stands. You're kind of on top of 
the the sideline so you can hear what the coach is yelling at the players and when you if you get the defense coming off and they gave up a big first down or they gave up a score <laughs> after a turnover or something like that oh yeah coach starts going off coach Drass's voice would carry and the whole I don't know if it was called Scotty D Miller Stadium at whatever field it was at the time it had a lot of names before they made it uh before they named it after coach Drass but it was always his field because when he when he would get to yelling uh it would start to carry and, and it wasn't always um you know, ready for prime time. It wasn't always what you want. Complimentary. Right. It wasn't always what you want mom in row 23 to hear. But I mean, it was the, it was the realest excerpt of what it's like on the sideline. And you don't, frankly, you don't get that when you go to a pro game or a D one game. We're going to move on to, you know, now some of these seasons where they have those back-to-back trips to the national semifinals and uh, we'll begin to hear from some of the quarterbacks who made really big noise as Wolverines. I am Nick Saipot. Played 2001 to 2005. I was number 88. Played D-tackle. Best memories at Wesley, I feel like, was just the process to get to Saturday for the wins. You know, uh, drafting was always intense Monday through Friday, and practices were just as intense, whether we played for a semifinal game or you know, a team that was 0-9. Being with your teammate who was always working just as hard as you next to you on game day and coming out with a W, was, there was nothing like that. And uh, for our team in 2005 to set the bar for the future teams is really special. But uh, those memories, those Saturdays will always be special to me. And those memories, you know, I'll never forget. This is Matt Walker, 2004 to 2007. I served as the team's long snapper. Uh, first and foremost, I want to say thank you for doing this for all us Wesley Wolverines out there. Uh, we do appreciate this. story I want to tell is my first year in 2004, first home game, brand new turf at the stadium, now called Draft Field. Just the process of getting there during the recruiting process, Coach Ash, Coach Strass, just, you know, really having your back, you know, and really just showing the care that they have for you. So my first play is a long snapper. Um like fourth and eight or something, we roll out for for punt and perfect snap. I punter Jay Gruder at the time, takes a nice little 36, 37 yard punt. Kid from Sturm College makes a couple guys miss, and there I am, 18 years old, bright eyed, bushy tailed, not really knowing how to make a tackle, being a, being an offensive center my entire life. I make a tackle, I force a fumble, I recover the fumble, and I just remember Coach Draft and Coach Adenazy, uh running out on the field, greeting me, congratulating me, giving me a hug, slapping, you know, high five and all that good stuff and just saying, that's why we brought you here, that's why we brought you here. Um, you know, don't ever doubt, doubt on yourself, you know, you made the right decision, all that good stuff. And, and you know, that that's one of the biggest memories that will – that will always be of one my experiences at Wesley College and two of Coach Strass and and you know the entire coaching staff down at Wesley during my year. Back Keith, what's up, guys? It's Jason Schatz, quarterback, wide receiver over at uh, Wesley from 05 to 08. Man, it is uh, it's hard to put my finger on a specific memory, but um, I think it would have to be for me in 06 um, Division three national playoffs against Maryland and Baylor. Uh, I think we muffed the uh, kickoff uh, for the second half, had the ball about on the three-yard line. Um, and I can just remember 
you know, a play that we practiced. Uh, we called it Cowboy. It was a uh, flea flicker from uh, Chris Warwick to myself, and, and Mike Clark was uh, just kind of, you know, stalking the safety, and then he just took off running. And I really think that blew the game open for us, and, uh, you know, that uh, definitely started our run of uh, consecutive, you know, playoff appearances and South Region titles, man. But, you know, it's uh, it's a sad day for all of us, and, um you know, to see this happen to a program like uh, Wesley College football is uh, it's tough to swallow, and I'm sure I speak for, you know, a lot of the uh, alumni. And, uh, you know, we're saddened by hearing this news. But, you know, we appreciate what you guys do and, uh, you know, giving us the uh, time in this podcast that you guys are doing for us. Go Wolverines. My name is Sean Matthews. Wesley linebacker. I was there, played in uh, from 2006 to 2008. So it's my first year at Wesley. We're playing in the Route 13 rivalry against Salisbury. We are down in this game. Salisbury quarterback throws an interception to myself. I pick it off. I run it back to the middle of the field. And one of Salisbury's offensive tackles, as I'm going to the ground, rips the ball out and I fumble and we give the ball back to the uh, to the to the goals there so this is all under four minutes luckily two plays later uh my best friend and fellow linebacker brandon humpback forces a big hit and a fumble and uh our corner bobby mcguire picks the ball back up and then uh we were able to march the ball about 40 yards down the field and kick the winning field goal with just over a minute left to win the game so uh highs and lows in that game it got real high when i intercepted that ball and damn i hit rock bottom when i uh when i got it ripped out but uh w- luckily one of my teammates were able to pick me up and get the ball back and we ended up winning the game so uh obviously it's a really sad time for for the program and the school uh a lot of great memories a lot of great people a lot of great uh relationships and you know times that are gonna not go on any longer there but they'll always be remembered Thanks to Coach Dratt, Coach Knapp, all the coaches at Wesley, and all my teammates for the great times I had there. And uh, thank you for doing this. This is Mike Ward, played at Wesley in those 609, D tackle there. I guess my, my best story is I guess my touchdown uh, freshman year against Mary Harden Baylor. Um, from what I'm always told, the stadium has never been that loud. And, I mean, as a freshman, being able to do something like that in a playoff game against a great team known as a powerhouse like we were was just a cool and incredible thing. I mean, Wesley College gave me a lot, but that was probably my favorite memory playing at Wesley. Next to playing Mountain because that game was so hyped up. I was way too excited for that game. It was just a fun game as well. So, yeah, those are my two best memories at Wesley my touchdown against Mayhart and Baylor freshman year and just playing against Mountain and being in that atmosphere. Some of the heyday of Wesley there, obviously. I really also enjoyed Matt Walker's story where, you know, my little one-liner on this is makes his debut at Drass Field in an auspicious way. That's the guy who was the long snapper, forced the fumble, got the validation, right, of coming to the sidelines and a guy who, you know, was recruited and, and playing in his first game as an 18-year-old is getting the coaches saying, hey, this is why we brought you here. You know, that, that to me is just a, another kind of great story of the people who ran the Wesley football program. Yeah, I, I think you're so right. Like there, there was a, there was a personal touch there. Like we would always see coach as we would, you would see dress before the game and he would try to throw us some like swag and we try to be like, oh, you know, we're can't, we can't take it. We're journalists. And then we'd somehow end up with like four Wesley shirts in our, in our car. And, yeah. 
you know, it was, it was, I mean, from everyone from the, the sports information director uh, on down to the fans, uh, what was the guy um, with the hat, the Frank or something like that. There was I know a, who you're talking about. He was always at the top of the bleachers yeah. all the time, right? Yeah, yeah. Yes, yes. There was always a guy, right? He was always at the t- and for us, especially when you were based out in Northern Virginia, but for me, I've been in uh, Nova the whole time. So for me, it was a two and a half hour drive and it was the easiest way to see um, teams from out of the area, right? <laughs> yep, right. And nationally significant playoff games. And then also in area, again, they played the best in the Centennial, the MAC, the NJAC, uh, frequently at the at the top of their non-conference schedule so you could get uh, you could see a Salisbury or a Montclair State or DelVal or Rowan or somebody like that for me you know there were only a couple of schools within a two and a half hour drive that would that would ha- play significant games uh, you know like Bridgewater Randolph-Macon um, Hopkins early yeah. right Hopkins earlier years Western yeah. Maryland that, that became McDaniel but uh, you know most of the time for us it, it, it's a long drive so get in get in to see Wesley uh, it just meant that we ended up there once or twice a season. And there were a lot of big personal moments for us there. I got to do a game with Frank Rossi there. Uh, you know, we go back to Gordon Mann and Pat Cummings and like yeah. the whole, the whole D3 family has broadcasted from there. Pat, it's where you and I came up with this bizarre theory that most D3 stadiums, <laughs> uh, if they're not like on campus ringed in by buildings, they are uh, next to a cemetery or train tracks. And Wesley's college, look, the field wasn't much to look at. Even, you know, there was a quote in there that said the stadium's never been that loud. It wasn't encircled in a way where the, the sound would reflect. It had a, a graveyard across the street. And so if you're looking out the press box, you'd see a graveyard. And there was kind of like a military installation where they parked parked uh, Jeeps or something a couple blocks off of campus. And, the, and the, the interviews, you had to walk across the building. It just wasn't the prettiest place. But the feeling, you know, you can ask any any Salisbury player, they they love that Wesley game. And I'm not saying this because I've talked to them about it. I know like they 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 circle that game. That's a big one that they want to win. The Route 13 rivalry. The better both teams got, the more important it became. And so it uh it, it really was a uh a place where a lot of us had a lot of personal memories. You know, we couldn't do this same broadcast for for any school. But I do think any school in D3 can sort of relate to some of these moments. And the last thing I'll say sort of in that in that relation vein is um, think hearing the story about the interception and the fumble back in, in a Salisbury game just reminds me of like a, a personal story. And I'll just give you the shortest possible version of it. But my junior year against Emory and Henry, like I there was like a big pass late in the game and it ended up leading to the game winning touchdown. And I didn't get beat on the pass, but I let the guy get an outside release. We're playing cover two. So I was supposed to jam him inside and he, he shouldn't have been as open as he was the next year. Like the same thing happens. They miss the pass. And then the next play strip sack, we recover it, go down, score the winning touchdown. And like me and, and one, one other player, a guy named Joe C2, we just had this look, this knowing glance. We were like, man, if they would have hit that pass on us again, you know, we'd be the goats and here we are the heroes right now. Right? Like our defense is, is, led the game winning turnover there are always these moments and they're these unsung players especially I love that these call-ins are coming from tackles and linebackers and and guys who weren't necessarily named guys over the years but you can tell they were just heart and soul 
of the program. And I am perfectly happy to not ever have to do a podcast like this again, right? It's, uh, it is because we are seeing a, uh, a top 10, perennial top 10 football program being taken away, that it, is, that it merits this specific amount of effort and getting all of these stories in. We have three more to go, and we're going to throw it to that final set. Oh, hi, this is Jason Bowen. Served uh, a coach for 10 years. I did uh, radio broadcasts for 17 years, and I was also the sports information director of the school. Um, my memories of Wesley. Um, you know, it's been 30 years, so I don't know if two, I can get them all in in two minutes. It was uh, a, a wonderful place uh, in, in my life and so many other people's lives at the school and uh, you know the football program. Uh, new coach dress going back to when I was in high school before he even got to Wesley. And uh, it was a thrill to coach with him from 1993 to 2003. And like he did with so many other people, he, when I was uh, starting to have kids and, and things like that, he found a, a place where I could still be a part of the program as, uh, as one of the radio broadcasters. You know, to be a part of that is something that I take great pride in, and I know uh, everybody associated with the program uh, did and certainly Coach Drass was the engine for that. But as he would have said, um, you know, he didn't do it himself. Um, you know, Chip uh, learned so much from those two men, more than I can even say uh, about football and life. Again, uh, to work with them and so many other coaches and players throughout the years. You know, when you've been long around long enough to see, um, you know, the thing you're proudest of as an old coach, I guess, is is uh, those guys that have gone on and you see them growing up and having families and being successful and, uh, you know, just being productive parts of our community and our society. And, you know, that's what it was all about. You know, Coach Dress uh, was, was always about together. And, uh, you know, as he certainly was the engine, but, uh, you know, he would say we all did that, um, did that together. It took Wesley from uh, something I remember driving to the Dover in 1993 and, <laughs> I couldn't find the school. <laughs> it was that small. Uh, and uh, I finally found it. And, you know, this place, you know, a Spartan place. You weren't going to get a lot of facilities and amenities. Um, but uh, everybody came together and built something that we were really, really proud of. Thanks, Jason. Next clip is from Justin Sadler, quarterback for the Wolverines, 2010 to 2012. We're playing uh, Salisbury. This is back in 2010. McSweeney had been there the whole, you know, the whole time, giving me tips and everything like that. Because he had gotten hurt earlier that year and stayed around. Was at every practice, the meetings, games on the sidelines, you know, with with you know, always in my ear, telling me something. So uh, we're playing Salisbury. We're down late in the game, fourth quarter, down by four or something like that, and uh, come off the sidelines from a, a poor drive. And, and he comes over and he's like, "Why don't you just throw a fade to Ellis?" At the time, we had Ellis and Leonard on the outside. They weren't pressing us. They were bailing. You know, they were bailing like crazy. And I'm thinking in my mind at the time, you know, if somebody bails, the fate is dead. And he's like, let's just throw, just throw a jump ball. Like, let him go get it. It'll be easy. You know, just, let him, just throw it up and give him a chance. So we go out the next drive. I audible to it, throw it. Um, easy touchdown. Ellis made it look like it was nothing. So that was kind of cool. Um and then that that moment has just stuck with me for the rest of my you know playing career, and uh, I always just have his voice in the back of my mind telling me like, like why why would you not take advantage of that you know, 
So uh, that's that's something that's pretty cool and definitely think about on a on a regular basis while playing. So appreciate it, Shane. Uh, so thank you for that one. And for those keeping track at home, Ellis Kraut's 27-yard touchdown catch in the fourth quarter gave Wesley the lead in that game, and they held on for the win, 17 to 14. Final story in this segment, and it comes from Eric Trewinski. Hi, my name is Eric Trewinski. I was the videographer for the Wesley football team from 2009 to this year, 2021. Uh, my memory isn't really my favorite, but it's the one that really defined uh, the Wesley football team to me. And that was the 2011 Walsh game. Ben Knapp had been uh, traveling with the team, uh, with his father, of course. And on the morning of the game, um, he had suffered a heart attack. Now, I had come down to the lobby in the hotel among uh, with the other football players. We had no clue what had happened. But uh, the coaches brought everybody outside next to the bus and uh, or the buses. And Coach Stamp went to proceed to tell everybody what had happened that morning. And uh, he broke down and cried and could barely get his words out. And just was absolutely heartbreaking. But yet that man somehow was able to uh, get everything together, put his headset on, load everybody in the buses, and we ended up beating Walsh like 28-3 to at Fawcett Stadium. And uh, immediately thereafter, uh, the buses went straight to Pittsburgh, to the Pittsburgh uh, Children's Hospital, and uploaded and filled the, the lobby there uh, to give their support to the family. And it really showed to me uh, what this team was all about, you know, the success in the face of adversity. So uh, thank you, Wesley. Thank you for everything you've done, and uh, I really appreciate it. Uh, it was all heart. It was all heart. It's hard to know what to say after a story like that, Keith, uh, but, you know, it is, you know, just a, a powerful story. It talks about what so many of the other players have talked about in the course of this past not quite hour on this podcast about, you know, how a football team, how a football program is more than just a collection of young men. It really is a family. I think it becomes that, right? You like you start out and you're just grabbing players and and guys who seem like good young men and throwing them all together. And, and you don't exactly know when you become a bunch of guys and you turn into a team. But by the time you, you know, you take your bus to the hotel, I mean, to the hospital, not the hotel, um, you know, that's when that's like larger than life. And, and I think for, for a lot of players, Wesley became larger than life. Look, Wesley's one of the, the, not few, but there aren't that many places in D3 where there are a significant number of black players and white players on the team who get to get along and, and function like brothers. Um, brotherhood was also reflected in, in the story about the quarterbacks where one quarterback, uh, a guy who was a little bit uh, run happy, we might say, right? Loved to run the ball, put his head down and uh, got hurt one year and, and stayed on campus to tutor the other quarterback. And there's a specific moment where, where that brotherhood and that, look, I'm just trying to help. I'm just trying to help you out here. That moment, resonates right a moment where um where someone who's not on the team like on the field but but they're part of the team like almost all of us uh, at least i think a lot of us can relate there are just people around the program who are i don't want to say this in a disrespectful way but who are who are our bed nap where they're they're around the program they are they're part of your family you know them by sight you know you see them every game every practice yeah. whatever in the dining hall wherever and then, uh, and then something happens to that person, and um, 
it reminds you that, that, you know, the football is a game and it's an important game and it matters a lot to all of us, but, um, but nothing matters more than, you know, your health and your life. And, and Pat, you and I could go back over the years and, and talk about the different incidents, um, things that have happened, unfortunate things that have happened to people on the field and off the field. These moments really, um, you know, they stick with us and they kind of help make us who, who we are. And I think that's probably the biggest takeaway from all these stories here is that, um, you know, Wesley football, um, there won't be any more games, but it, it will always exist uh, in some form and in some people's hearts. You know, this place mattered. It is and was or was and is a big part of, of many people's identity and their lives. And, uh, you know, for, for better or worse, the memories are good and, and, and sometimes not so good. Um, and, you know, there are people, a really significant person, obviously, who, um, who who's not here to see this day, but... Um, but the imprint he left, man, you know, if any of us could could aspire to, to touch half that many people as, uh, as Coach Dress did over the years, you know, um, we, we'd feel like we lived a pretty good life. Before we go, it's time for our games to watch. As of Monday night when we're doing this podcast recording, there's uh, 24 of the 30 games which are not yet postponed, or shall we say, still on. And of those, I'm going to be paying the most attention to Augsburg at St. Thomas. My game to watch this week is the NACC championship game that is going to have Aurora hosting Lakeland. Aurora features 2019 Gallardi finalist Gavin Zimbelman at quarterback. And despite a bit of the turnover bug against Benedictine a couple of weeks ago, uh, he has been his usual outstanding self. Lakeland is led by their standout quarterback, Charltez Nunnery, who happens to lead the NACC in rushing. Uh, both of these teams average over 460 yards of offense per game. They both score over 40 points per game. So if you like points and offense, this one is going to be your jam. If one of those games doesn't come off, check in on Sunday when Lebanon Valley is scheduled to play Alvernia. Plus, of course, on Friday night, there's those four OAC crossover games scheduled, including that Heidelberg at Mount Union game for the OAC title. Your categories have become tiresome. Now's the time on Sprockets where we dance. This is the time of the podcast where we go to Twitter. We know how this works. You know how this works. Twitter is a short messaging. No, we'll skip that part. But it is an opportunity for you guys to ask a question and get us to answer it live on the pod. This question coming from BadgerFanAZ. I think that's how that's spelled. Uh, involving Sean Green of WDEL asking about the future of Wesley players. Any Wesley players going to Delaware State? Any uh, news on what's going to happen with head coach Chip Knapp? Uh, no news on that so far. Um, there are, of course, uh, you know, Steve Azanese is the uh, offensive coordinator now at Delaware State. He used to be at Wesley. Uh, he was name checked in the uh, previous segment, a longtime assistant coach there. Um, but would, you know, would players and coaches go over to Delaware State? I feel like there is. Uh, I feel like Sean and I have some disagreements on this and he is on the ground in, uh, in Delaware and obviously a little bit closer to the situation, but I know that there are Wesley guys who could help Delaware state right away. I mean, the, the, uh, you know, the Delaware state football program was two and 10 the last time that there was a full division one FCS football season. And one of those games was against a, a D two school. One of those wins, I mean, Delaware state football, I would, venture to guess for a significant part of the last 20 years 
was not the best college football program in Dover, Delaware. And I would have to think that there are a number of Wesley guys who could help that program. And I think some of them may also have been coaches. Yes, indeed. And I know when, when we spoke to uh, Chip Knapp for our Around the Nation piece uh, shortly after the announcement was made that Wesley was going to close, uh, one thing that he told me is that you know part of what they're doing for Wesley football players this spring is to get them opportunities to play, get film, and you know they're committed to helping those guys find football futures uh, away from Wesley, whether it's at Delaware State or other schools in the Mid-Atlantic or wherever they might be. But they're certainly um, committed to helping their players uh, continue to play if that's what those players want to do. So um, you're going to see Wesley football players transfer to schools in the area, and we're going to see them on rosters next fall. And they're going to be some of those players that are going to be very, very good and big upgrades for a lot of teams that they land on. Yeah, I mean, we haven't talked about Drew Fry, for example, the quarterback, at all this spring because he needs to get his grades up in order to play for somebody in the fall. But, you know, just right off the top of the bat, that's a guy who's got three years worth of eligibility left somewhere to go, you know, go play Division three football and, and seems capable of doing it at a really high level. I think we've talked about this a little bit, but, you know, probably expect to see schools such as Delaware Valley and maybe, you know, Rowan or other places in the NJAC. Um, you know, perhaps, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I don't know if I would see like a, it's, it's like a Randolph-Macon player going to Hampton, Sydney. Dogs and cats living together, mass hysteria. Do some of them go to Salisbury? Maybe if you are a running back, maybe not if you're a wide receiver, I suppose. Um, you know, that sort of thing, right? These are, these are guys who are unfortunately, right, started their careers together, are probably going to end it kind of scattered to the four wins, but... Um, you know, I don't think you've heard the last of these guys as individuals. And we just spent nearly an hour hearing about, you know, some of the great things that uh, the memories that Wesley players will keep with them for the rest of their lives. A final game was just re-added to the schedule, I suppose. Uh, Wesley was supposed to play Stevenson and host Stevenson this past Friday night. Uh, Stevenson dropped out of that game to go uh, to play a conference game against Alvernia. They had initially canceled that Alvernia game to take the Wesley game, and then they ended up playing Alvernia. I'm going to guess, you know, some sort of conference, something, something. Uh, Wesley is now scheduled to finish with a game on Saturday night against Lackawanna Junior College, uh, you know, which in the grand scheme of things wouldn't be a game that would count, but at this point, it doesn't matter. This is an opportunity for them to play one last time on Mike Drass Field at Scott D. Miller Stadium. One other thing that, that Chip Knapp told me when I talked to him for the piece was that he and Mike Drass, when, over the years of their building schedules and their get it, like they needed to take whatever games they could get. A lot of people wouldn't play Wesley um, for whatever reasons, but they played all over the place. And you know, it was important for them to turn those those games into great experiences for their players. And this one against Lackawanna Junior College is certainly going to be about that experience for their players and um, hopefully a bit of a celebratory final four quarters here for Wesley College football. And not to give short shrift to some of the other schools that are not going to be playing Division Three football in the fall of 2021, uh, who were playing the last time we had a full season, right? 
Becker announced that it is closing and it will not reopen as a school in the fall. Occidental dropped its football program rather unceremoniously during the pandemic. Maine Maritime dropped football. McMurray closed uh, at the end of the 2019-2020 academic year, and and they won't be returning, obviously. Uh, St. Thomas moving on to Division One FCS. As I was going through and starting to, you know, like creating the files for the 2021 fall football standings, like there's a lot of little adjustments to be made and um you know i'd say i'm super thrilled about just about any of them i don't think any of this is better for division three football thanks i hate it no it is definitely not losing wesley losing st thomas um even out here in southern california losing occidental is that's a losing occidental is a major major blow not just for occidental but for the rest of the sky act because they're like if you want to replace a game with Occidental, now you've got to go somewhere at great expense to do it. And, you know, it, it, it's going to create a bit of a schedule challenge. A lot of the teams out here were already only playing nine games in a season. And now are we going to see eight game seasons from Skyac teams? Are we going to see teams play other Skyacs in a non-league kind of game, which nobody really likes? We'll see. But, you know, that's that's negative. Obviously, we don't like to see schools close um, because of financial difficulty that has been exacerbated by by the pandemic and everything that higher education has gone through in the last year and a half. Yeah, we'll see. You know, you you rattled off four or five schools that will not be playing football in the fall for various reasons, and we'll see what happens this summer. Right? We, there there could be could be more. We hope not, but. Uh, you know, I don't. the The realistic take is that we're probably not done seeing uh, seeing the culling here a little bit. And this was around the nation podcast number two eighty two, released on April fourteenth of twenty twenty one. Thanks for listening, and keep an eye out for our continuing coverage of spring football, and then as we get ready for the fall twenty twenty one football season as well. Hey, by the way, meant to mention this much higher up in the podcast. Uh, We'll be doing an All-American team for this this spring season. So just FYI to all those people out there. I know that in a lot of cases it's going to come maybe six or seven weeks perhaps after some of you all finished your seasons. But I guess that's not completely, un, you know, it's not all that different, I guess, than after a five-week playoff. So maybe uh, it's coming. It's coming. But, you know, teams are still playing and games are scheduled out as late as May 2nd at the moment. So we are not going to name that uh, team until those games are played. And you can support production of this podcast and the D3Sports.com family of websites in general by visiting our website and clicking on the big We Need Your Help story on the homepage or by visiting us at patreon.com slash D3Sports, P-A-T-R-E-O-N. It's like patron for an eon or, you know, for a month at a time because uh, even, you know, that is the, the sort of thing that helps support us financially. If you can't afford to support us financially, you can help us out by telling a friend, a classmate, a fellow alumnus, other parents of uh, football players at your particular school uh, about this show. You can also rate and review us in the various places and the various ways that people rate and review podcasts. If you've ever listened to a podcast, you've heard everybody say this. You can reach us to talk more about Division Three football on Twitter using the D3FB hashtag. I'm at D3Football on Twitter. Greg is at Wally Wabash and Keith is at D3Keith. We have a message board devoted to Division Three sports. Did you know? Join the conversation by registering to post at D3Boards.com. Also, you can follow D3Football.com on Facebook. 
The executive producer of the Around the Nation podcast is Pat Coleman. Production assistance provided by Dave McHugh. Our theme music and a lot of the other music used in this podcast is by DJ Mentos, whom you can find at djmentos.com as well as on Spotify. I have to give special thanks and a special shout out to Chad Craig, who's a former athletic trainer at Wesley. He helped us get in touch with a number of the former Wolverines who appeared on this podcast. And, and thanks really to everyone who took the time to send us a story about their memories of their time in Dover. Thanks to Greg Thomas, my co-host, and to the originator of Around the Nation on D3Football.com, Keith McMillan. There will be an off-season eventually. Some of you are in it now. Some of you have been in it for, uh, I don't know, 70 weeks or so. We'll be here to cover the off-season. We'll be getting you ready for football in August and then September. So keep an eye on D3Football.com. Oh, and all by the way, yeah, we have reason to watch the NFL draft coming up a little bit later this month and you can keep finding new podcasts here in this feed <laughs> I was like I meant to mention Quinn Miners higher up too I see a lot of a lot of people have been picking up on the Quinn Miners like wrestling bears for training thing and he is telling that story all over the place he's telling it much better every time too I like to think that uh that, that we got him started on that. I told him he had to workshop that. We lit the fuse on that for sure. Thank you, Thank you so much, everybody.